dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Shalom and welcome to the Mikra e Kodesh. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary for this particular study was updated on March 30th of 2007. Let's begin with our theme verse for the Mikra e Kodesh, Leviticus 23, verse 1. The English reads, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. The Hebrew reads, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe leimor, Daber el Bnei Yisrael, Vaamarta alehem, Moedei Adonai asher tikra uotam, Mikra e Kodesh Elehem Moadai. Attention everyone listening to this commentary. I need to make you aware of an updated feature to the timing of this particular commentary. 2016 update. This commentary is going to discuss the timing issues surrounding the Passion chronology of the week of Yeshua's death and resurrection. I want everyone to understand that for years I asserted that Yeshua most likely died on the very same day as when the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple, viz. on Nisan the 14th, which I was figuring was on a Friday. To put this Seder meal, to put his Seder meal on the prior evening, the sunset of the 13th, as it became the 14th, eaten of course without meat from the sacrificial lambs, uh, is how I understood the chronology. So, uh, dying on the 14th of Nisan, which means his Seder was on the 13th as it went into the Friday before then. In this way, uh, technically, I had Yeshua keeping his Seder. I assumed it was a Chagiga. I had him keeping his Seder on the 14th while being able to die 21 or so hours later on the day part of the 14th as well. In other words, he had a Seder on the 14th, um, at the 13th going into the 14th, you know, sundown, that type of thing. And then he died later on in the day part of the 14th. That's how I used to figure it. However, after careful research, and as an update to my own understanding of the chronology of the week of Passover in which Yeshua was crucified, I've now come to understand that Yeshua was most likely crucified on Nisan 15th, which, as far as I can reckon, would still have been on a Friday, 
as I maintained earlier. This means he ate the Pesach meal with meat from lambs slaughtered the day before on Nisan the 14th, a Thursday. Essentially, I now hold to Yeshua being crucified on Chag HaMatzah, the day of unleavened bread, basically. So he was crucified on the 15th. So in, clu- in conclusion, uh, for this update, I just want you to let want to let you know I still hold to a conjunction-like occurrence of Nisan 14th, 15th, and 16th, all being back-to-back, i.e. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, with no days skipped in between. The only major changes to my timetable are that I now hold to Yeshua eating his Seder on Thursday the 14th. Previously, I thought the 14th was a Friday. And being crucified on Friday the 15th. Previously, I had the Seder on the crucifixion, both on Friday, the Chagiga Seder being on the evening part of the 14th, and his death during the afternoon, some 21 or so hours later, viz. the day part of the 14th. So, I hope that this updated clarification uh, does not cause too much confusion when following this commentary. Uh, this particular study is going to center on the festival um, known as Omerishit, or First Sheaf. This festival is alternately known by the titles Bikurim, First Fruits, and or Counting the Omer. And with that, let's read the verse pertaining to this particular festival. Leviticus 23, 9-12 reads, Quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving you, and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai, so that you will be accepted. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a male lamb, without defect in its first year as a burnt offering for Adonai. End quote. I also want to read in Hebrew just verse uh, 9 and 10 because the word first fruits that shows up in the English is not actually um, a consistent translation of that term. We have two words um, from the Hebrew that are rendered as the one word in English, first fruits. Sometimes the phrase is Omer Reshit, which is the name of my commentary. Other times, if it's pertaining to what we really know as Shavuot or Pentecost, a different word, uh, Bikurim, or first fruits, will show up there. So in the Hebrew, uh, Leviticus 23, 9 and 10 reads, let me pull it up here. Here we are. It reads, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. If you notice there when it says uh, when you come to the land that I give you and reap its harvest you shall bring and in my translation I had bring the first fruits but the Hebrew says um vahavtem uh, et omer reshit reshit is is the root word is rosh where we get the word um uh, head or um beginning and omer is the hebrew word for sheaf so i've translated it as um first sheaf omer reshit now at this point in time it should be made apparent that the feast of the lord are very important times on the calendar um I, I can't stress this fact 
too much, especially given the tradition that we, the church, have inherited. These are the feasts of the Lord. And that's why I keep reading the very first Pasuk, uh, 23.1. Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim. In other words, sure, Israel was chosen. Sure, Israel was uh, singled out. But Israel was chosen to uh, um, showcase the festivals of God. Israel was chosen to festi- uh, show- had chosen to showcase the the ways of God. They're not the Jewish feasts in 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 the ownership sense of the word Jewish. The Jewish people did not invent them. The Jewish people did not own them, and they they have no right to wield them in such a way as to de- determine who gets to participate and who doesn't. That is a complete misnomer that has been again fostered for the last. I don't know, two, 1,900, 2,000 years or so, and on both sides of the uh, street. we got the synagogue on one side saying, the Torah is for the Jews only, and therefore you Gentiles, and certainly you Christians, cannot keep them. And on the other side of the fence, I, I just got through um, having a meeting with a, 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 a pastor last week, and his impression is that the Torah is for Jews only. And so, um, at least that's how I understood our meaning. Uh, maybe I misunderstood him. I'll have to go back and ask him. But as I understand standard Christian theology teaches that the Torah is for Jews only. And standard uh, synagogue theology teaches that the Torah is for Jews only. People, we've got to get this into our heads and understand what the Torah is teaching us right here in the book of Leviticus. The designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Okay? They're God's. Sure, Israel is the steward of them but they belong to God. All right? Let's get that fact straight as we go forward. The feasts of the Lord are very important times on his calendar. As I've mentioned in other um, studies, these festivals or these feasts, these, these meeting times, would be an opportunity for God to teach his people everything they need to know on a um, relational basis with the um, son that God would send into their communities um, thousands of years after he gave these festivals, of course. Now, I'm not saying that the Torah is a complete set of instructions, but instead, um, the festivals are all the um, meeting times that we need to know about. We don't need to reinvent new meeting times so that we can understand his son more. Um, Christmas, Easter, uh, Lent, um, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, um, what are some of the other ones? Uh, res, res, well, that's Easter, I suppose. I was going to say Resurrection Day. Uh, these days, although they are innovative, there's no scriptural warrant for adding these days to God's calendar. That's my point. Um, we just don't need to do it. God gives us a perfect list. And in his perfection, why would we seek to improve ostensibly on that which God has perfectly given? No, Leviticus 23 is a complete list. Even the extra-biblical days that get added by the Jewish people um, need to be categorized. As, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, um, uh, let's say, Chinukah, uh, Purim, these days. These extra-biblical days are not designed to teach us something about the Messiah. These are national holidays. I, I would put them on par with, like, say, Thanksgiving and, and Independence Day and things like that. Everyone knows that those are national holidays. And so the Jewish people have a right to also add national holidays. Every nation has a right to have their own national holidays. But what we're talking about is the biblical list, okay? 
holy convocations that are set apart for a distinct purpose. Um, this third event that we're discussing here, this third event of the Pesach season, would carry with it truths pertinent to the spiritual well-being of the young nation of Israel as well. Okay, The three or four, really, festivals, as we're going to get to it in a moment, festivals that are found in the spring part of the year and then the one that's kind of sitting out there in the middle by itself that's seemingly disconnected, but in actuality is not. We've got Passover, Unleavened Bread, and now we're going to talk about Omer Reshit, and then connected to that is Shavuot, Pentecost, which will come up 50 days later. And if you don't take walk away with this information from the study, um, then I guess I have failed to do my job. The first um, harvest is the barley harvest. The first sheaf is the barley harvest. And that begins the count. And then 50 days later, we have the second harvest, which is the wheat harvest. And that's what's known as Shavuot. And so they are inextricably linked with the counting that takes place between them. So, this calendar, please understand, it's not just any calendar. This was the calendar of the creator of all men. And as such, they're rightly called holy convocations. For intrinsically, if you think about it, there's nothing special about one day against any other day. Every day has 24 hours in it. Every day begins and ends with the sun um, or the, the earth turning itself around so the, the sun rises and the sun sets or, or as in Jewish reckoning the sun sets and the sun rises. Either way you look at it, um, we have this cycle. And intrinsically, days are days. But when the Lord of Holiness sanctifies a day. When he sets it apart as holy, then we have to understand and we have to admit that the day becomes holy without question. The day. God sanctifies time. Isn't that interesting? God sanctifies um, certain days on the calendar. And by divine decree, it's holy. Not by human decree. By divine decree, it's holy. And since God recognizes it as such, it is only a matter of obedience that we, as his creations, also recognize its holiness. We have no right, let me say this again, we have no authority to uproot God's holy days. There is no scriptural warrant for such an, uh, an invention or such, such um, an idea. It, it's foreign to the scriptures. And that's sad considering the legacy that has been passed down to most Christians. That Sabbath has been done away with. That the festivals have been um, superseded by new ones. Or that they have been, um, that they've been done away with in, in the finished work of Yeshua. There's nothing in the scriptures that indicates that. Okay, We've got to get our hermeneutics straight. We've got to start reading our Bibles. It's simple as that. Your average man can read Leviticus 23.1 and realize, hey, these are God's festivals. All right, enough of my ranting for now. Let me continue. On the commentary, I'm going to first start by pulling a quote from Baruch A. Levine in his commentary to Leviticus. A very, very helpful book. I highly recommend it to anyone who wishes to pick one up. Um, you know, Go to Amazon.com or something like that and do a, do a search for the JPS Torah commentary set. It's a five-volume set, one on each of the five books of Moshe. Let's um, allow his commentary... Uh, to outline the logistics of this part of chapter 23 for us. And later on I'm going to use a lot of inf some other information from his commentary as well. Let's start out with this particular quote. In this section, uh, Levine goes on to say, two offerings taken from the new crop are prescribed. The Omer and the Kurim. Two offerings. 
The first omer is the offering of a sheaf of new barley. That's the first offering. As originally intended, the priest was to offer it on the morrow of the first Sabbath, subsequent to the seven-day festival. New grain could not be eaten until this offering was made. It constituted desacralization, a rite that gives God the first of the new crop, thus releasing the rest of it for ordinarily human use. He goes on to say, Beginning on the day of this offering, a period of counting is initiated. Seven full Sabbaths, or weeks, are counted off. On the fiftieth day, the second offering of meal of new wheat, baked into leavened loaves, is offered in the sanctuary as bikurim, or first fruits. It consists of grain furnished by the Israelite settlements. That day is a sacred assembly on which work is forbidden. Here, it is not designated Chag, or pilgrimage, as it is in Deuteronomy 16.10, a significant difference, end quote. That was lifted from uh, Baruch Levine, the JPS Torah Commentary to Leviticus, Jewish Publication Society, 1989, page 157. Again, uh, we're going to quote from him a little later on. Now, as explained by Levine, the Hebrew word for sheaf in this particular passage is omer, or omer. Um, and the omer counting leads to the well-known event called Shavuot, or Pentecost, as it's more widely recognized by many Christians. Read uh, Acts chapter 2 and you'll know what I'm talking about when I say Pentecost. Uh, to wit, we must understand from this passage that the days from Pesach to Hamatzah to Omer Reshit to Shavuot are inextricably linked. They do not um, stand alone in a sense. They, they are working together. God is, is, is giving us this this, I'm going to use the term progressive, as it were, teaching, um, because um, all of the truths that are contained within each separate festival are not um, condensed into one festival. Rather, God's intent is that we were to walk out the calendrical days in an effort to understand the truth that is being presented as each subsequent festival is encountered. A biblical principle worth remembering at this point which carries significant truth down to this very day, is that, quote, the first always belongs to Hashem, end quote. Okay, just remember that. The first always belongs to Hashem. This theme will play a prominent feature later on in this commentary, so just remember that. Alright, let's move on. This next section in my commentary is entitled Issues Surrounding the Timing of Bikurim, or the Timing of Omer Rishit. Let me just change this real quick. Of Omer Rishit. Alright, I've actually got this commentary opened up in Word um, format so that if I find any typos I can catch them on the spot. So I decided I'd change the term there. Um, Bikurim to Omer Rishit. Alright, um, some readers will readily notice that history has been generally unkind to this particular festival. Now you ask, what do I mean by unkind? Well, I mean to draw your attention to the fact that no less than three prominent Jewish sects have come to interpret the timing associated with the start of this count uh, that in, the, in the verses in at least three respective but differing ways. Um, we're going to let author Tim Haig um, detail this section for us. He's brilliantly noted the, such, uh, noted the differences in a short paper called Counting the Omer, and it's viewable from his website at torresource.com. Let's pick up the quote there. 
he goes on to say, at least three different sects understood the chronology of the Omer counting differently. A. The majority of the Jewish community, and perhaps particularly those in Judea near Jerusalem, considered the phrase, quote, the morrow after the Sabbath, end quote, to be the day following the opening Sabbath of Chag HaMatzot, that is, the 16th of Nisan. B. The subgroup of the Sadducees, known as the Bethusians, took the Leviticus text to mean, quote, the morrow after the weekly Sabbath, end quote, and thus commenced their counting on the day following the first weekly Sabbath within the festival week. And C. The Qumran sect apparently understood the Sabbath in question to be the final day of Chag Hamatzot, and thus began their counting on the first day of the week following the completed festival, end quote. So, we've got three views, three main views, um, that Tim Haig is trying to introduce to us. History has shown that we've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the Qumran sect, all vying for um, a calendar day as to when to begin the count. So, given that information right up front, which view is correct and how does it impact you, the reader? Because you might say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, in fact, again, standard Christian theology would say it doesn't matter because the festivals have been done away with now that Jesus has come and has risen again. But that, again, as I've already explained earlier, is an incorrect way to approach the scriptures. We, the Torah communities, certainly embrace the reality of the festivals and their applicability on our communities down to this very day. And so it becomes important, it's incumbent upon us, to try and understand what the passage is teaching us. Depending on which view you go with, the impact will determine the date that you celebrate Shavuot 50 days later. You see what's at stake here? If we don't have a um, an agreed-upon starting date for the, the count of the Omer, well, then we won't have an agreed-upon end date 50 days later because the 50 days in between, or the 49 plus 1, those are, are, are um, th- those days go, uh, begin a count without a break. There's, there's no break between. And so if we start early, we'll end early. If we start late, we'll end late. That's the bottom line. The difficulty lies in the, inter- in the interpretation of a key Hebrew phrase found in our text quoted at the onset of the commentary. So let me go back and read Leviticus 23, 9-12 again, and then I'm going to um, highlight which verses are causing the dif- difficulty. Quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving you and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai so that you will be accepted. <clears throat> The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. There's the phrase. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. All right, we're going to find out what the Hebrew of that is and exegete it in a moment. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering for Adonai. Quote. Now let's go back to Levine. Levine provides what appears to be a Bethusian view, at least as I read it. Um, it reads, quote, on the day after the Sabbath. Commenting on that phrase, reading from Levine, we have, quote, the Hebrew words, mi mochorat ha-shabbat, repeated in verse 15a, are problematic because it's not specified which Shabbat or which Sabbath is intended. The accepted rabbinic interpretation is that here Shabbat does not refer to the Sabbath day, but means something similar to Shabbaton in verse 39. That is, a time of resting. This characterization appears, I'm sorry, applies both to the Sabbath and 
the festivals. This interpretation is explained in the Sifra to Imor 23.11 and 15, which reads, Mi mochrat shabbat mi mochrat yom tov, which in, from the Hebrew interpreted in English is, on the morrow of the Sabbath, on the morrow of the festival, end quote. He goes on to say that Targum Onkelos explains Mi Mochrata Shabbat in the same way as does the Septuagint to 23.11. And the Greek says Te Eparion Tes Protes which being interpreted from the Greek into English is on the morrow of the first day. In essence, the first day of the festival. Now, although this interpretation resolves a difficulty in the text, and by the way, let me just pause there and say at that point in time, it would be a Pharisaic interpretation. Because it does resolve the difficulty in the text, Levine goes on to say it does not convey its simple sense. It has been suggested that the words mi mochrat shabbat in verse 11 and in verse 15a represent an abbreviation of the phrase mi mochrat shabbat hashevi'it which from the Hebrew being interpreted literally until the morrow of the seventh Sabbath of days in verse 16 below all right verses 15 through 16 use the term Shabbat in the sense of week that's understood from Levine's commentary verse 11 uses the abbreviation Shabbat in its normal sense of a particular day in essence the Sabbath day or Saturday this would require that seven Sabbaths of days, or Shabbatot, would pass during the period of 50 days. In other words, seven Sabbaths. It is therefore suggested, Levine goes on to conclude, that the words Mimochrat Shabbat here and in verse 15a were glosses, uh, that is to say shortened versions, inserted, or, or um, not necessarily shortened version. Well, you know, well, yeah, I guess a shortened version. Inserted to ensure that the period of counting the week, seven weeks, would begin on the day after the Sabbath. Notice that phrase there? Counting the seven weeks would begin on the day after the Sabbath. And by stating that, that is actually a Bethusian view, or a Sadducean view. Um, in fact, let me go back up to where, what did Haig say? A subgroup of the Sadducees, the Bethusians. Was, were the ones who, as according to Haig, um, took the Leviticus text to mean the morrow after the weekly Sabbath. And that's exactly what Le- Levine just mentioned there. If this analysis is accurate, Levine goes to comment, the text of verse 11 should probably read as follows. Vehinif et haomer lifne Adonai li retzonchem yenifnu hakohen which interpreted into English is he shall present the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance on your behalf the priest shall present it end quote so let's continue to examine this particular text again um, with relation to the date of Shavuot uh, I jumped forward in, in Levine's commentary to just look up the comments to Shavuot while we've got them here in front of me. And it seems like they make a distinctively Bethusian comment again there. Um, That first quote was pulled out of page 158, and now I'm going to jump all the way to page 159, where they're commenting about Shavuot. And here's what Levine has to say. Quote, And from the day in which you bring the sheaf, the day after the Sabbath, uh, commenting on this phrase, referring to the comment to verse 11 above, it should be repeated here that the words mi mochrat shabbat may be a gloss. <clears throat> the, uh, 
the original text may have read again a gloss is like a shortened version of you know like a glossary a shortened version of maybe a longer phrase and what Levine is suggesting is that the shortened phrase Mimochrata Shabbat is actually a gloss of the longer phrase or a a a, a gloss is like a um an, a summary of a longer statement um quote Usefartem lachem miyom havi achem and that phrase from the Hebrew rendered into English is and you shall count off from the day on which you bring End quote. Now, Levine goes on to say that this is how the text of the Temple Scroll from Qumran reads, exactly what we just read. The offering is known as Omer Hatanufa, um, the sheaf for the presentation. Omer Hatanufa. In biblical usage, when the term Shabbat refers to a week and not an occasion, it probably always connotes a sabbatical week. This is certain in chapter 23 and in the Holiness Code in general. Levine goes on to say, in 25.8 of Leviticus, Shiva Shabbat, I'm sorry, um, Shiva Shabbatot Shanim means seven septenaries, namely seven cycles of seven years, each of which ends with a sabbatical year when no planting or harvesting may be done. Um, see what see the confusion as we look at these Hebrew words. Hebrew is 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 precise uh, sometimes, and other times it's it's a little um, vague. Shiva Shabbatot Shanim means seven septenaries, or seven cycles of sevens. And so we have to determine from the context sometimes what the word Shabbat uh, is trying to indicate. Uh, Levine goes to say, on this basis, Shiva Shabbatot, uh, Shiva Shabbatot in verse 15 of Leviticus 23 must mean, quote, seven weeks of days, end quote. And this indicates, in effect, that the period of counting begins on the day after the first Sabbath the first Sunday subsequent to the beginning of the festival. Quote. Now, um, again, a decidedly Bothusian, comment, uh, Bothusian point of view. I'm not going to say up front right now whether, whether the Pharisaic, the Bothusian, or the um, Qumrani sect had the correct view. We're just going to have to keep reading before we uh, make a, a conclusion. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's tempting to just, gosh, throw it all out and say, uh, my head is spinning, I don't know what to do. I mean, how are, we, how are we, the Messianic community of today, to interpret the above-offered explanation that Levine just gave us? How did the ancient Israelites understand the mitzvah is what I want to know. Don't you want to know? How did they understand the commandments to begin counting on, quote, the morrow after the Sabbath, end quote? Perhaps the Torah does give us a valuable clue in the book of Joshua. Let's go take a look. And this is going to be an effort to help resolve the matter, which I personally prefer to think of the following example as an authoritative enough for me, uh, uh, adding to the fact that, as Heg noted above, the majority opinion of the Pharisees must have also been heavily influenced by the Joshua passage, the Joshua passage. In other words, when in doubt, ask yourself this question as a Bible student. How did the people back then understand? And the earlier we can go back, perhaps the more readily we are uh the, the more um, expected we are to understand what the passage means, the more readily we are to understand it. Let's read the Joshua passage. Here's Yehoshua chapter 5, verses 10-12. through 12. Quote, The people of Israel camped at Gilgal, and they observed Pesach on the 14th day of the month there on the plains of Jericho. The day after Pesach, they ate what the land produced, matzah, and roasted ears of grain that day. The following day after they had eaten food produced in the land, the man ended. From, or manna, as it 
says in your verse, in your version. From then on, the people of Israel no longer had man. Instead, that year, they ate the produce of the land of Kina'an. End quote. Okay, let's exegete this passage. Now, notice carefully that verse 11 of the passage I just read states that they ate the otherwise forbidden product, uh, the produce, the product. Um, they ate the otherwise forbidden product on the day after Pesach. And the reason I say it's forbidden is because it's forbidden until waived by the priest before Hashem, of course. We just read that. That's how the commandment works. God said, when you come to the land, um, let me go back up and read the verse again. Adonai said to Moshe, this is Leviticus 23, 9-12, tell the people of Israel, after you enter the land, of which the people in Joshua did, I'm giving you, and harvest its ripe crops, which they did, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai so that you will be accepted. The Kohen is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering. After you enter the land, and I'm giving you and harvest its ripe crops. Let's go back down to Joshua. The people of Israel camped at Gilgal, and they observed Pesach on the 14th day of the month. there on the plains of Jericho. The day after Pesach, they ate what the land produced. You see what it says there? They ate what the land produced. Doesn't that sound exactly like what it said up in Leviticus? They ate the ripe crops. They are on the plains of Jericho. So how could they have eaten it if they would not have waved it before the Lord? That's the whole question. So let's go back and exegete again. Um, verse 11 states that they ate the otherwise forbidden product on the day after Pesach. Uh, and that in verse 12, the following day, that the heavenly food ended, the, the, um, the manna. Now, um, don't be confused, alright? The word Pesach in the above verse must include the day of unleavened bread. Um, because we know that the that the term Pesach um, is synonymous with the term for unleavened bread um, calendrically. Uh, in other words, it says it says um, the day after Pesach they ate what the land produced. Really, what we're trying to say is the day after unleavened bread. The word Pesach in the above verse must include the day of unleavened bread, Hamatzah, a Shabbat, for the verse to make sense. Fascinating, huh? By the way, it appears to be the ancient Israelites understood quote the morrow after the Shabbat end quote to mean the day immediately following the Feast of Hamatzah, because that's when they ate it. What's more, it even appears to indicate that Hashem approved of their interpretation by ceasing to provide manna in, flavor, in, uh, in favor of what the land would produce from then on out. So not only do we have um, the Israelites, at least in Joshua, interpreting um, the sequence of the dates as 14th Passover, 15th Unleavened Bread, and 16th Un, uh, um, Omer Reshit, but we also have Hashem ending the manna on the next day, or or on the, from then on out. So it appears to be that their interpretation was correct, and it appears that Hashem approved. Now, with such a strong example provided for us by the events in Yehoshua, is it no wonder that the Pharisees went with what I like to call a conjunction-like interpretation of the Passover week? And when I say conjunction, I mean this. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, no days broken up in between. In this model, all of the feasts occur back to back with no days interrupting the chronology. Even more interesting is that in the year of the of Yeshua's crucifixion, if one goes with a Friday Pesach model, the Pharisaic interpretation would have would have fixed the waving of the Omer on as Sunday, which is the day on which Mashiach was reported to have already been risen by the Synoptic Gospels. We know that's true. Now, um, if this is true, that because if we had a Friday crucifixion, 
then this would also correspond in that year with the Sadducees as well. Isn't that interesting? God seems to have a sense of humor. This means that both groups that year would have recognized uh, quote-unquote Resurrection Sunday as the day of firstfruits, or the day of Omer Reshit. Let me just change that term for firstfruits there. As Omer Reshit. Um, so look at my written commentary on page 4, um, and you'll see the chart goes Pharisees, 14th of Nisan is Pesach, which it was a Friday. And the 15th of Nisan was Unleavened Bread, which was, was um, Shabbat, or Saturday. And then 16th of Nisan was uh, Omer Reshit. Let me change the word again. Omer Reshit. The morrow after the festival, which uh, uh, the festival Shabbat, or the morrow after the Sabbath, which was Sunday. See how that works? Hold on, let me fix my tab there. Sorry about that. Okay. And then if you look at the chart where it says Sadducees, you'll see that for them, 14th of Nisan was Pesach, which was Friday. 15th of Nisan was Unleavened Bread, which was Shabbat, or Saturday. And then the 16th of Nisan, again, Omer Reshit, but this time it was the morrow after the weekly Shabbat. See how that works? Omer Reshit. Again, fixing my tab there. Um... It is, in fact, an interesting phenomenon that God would allow the two calendars to line up that year. And sure enough, it's going to line up like that from time to time, but it's not always going to be that way, and that's where there is a difference of opinion. Is it the morrow after the festival Shabbat, or is it the morrow after the weekly Shabbat? And that's the question. God truly works in mysterious ways, either way you cut it. So, before I um, um, finish up with that part of my commentary, move on to a next section... Let me just check the time here. How are we doing? We're at 30 minutes. Um, I'm going to go ahead and stop the commentary right here, call it Part A, and when we pick up the discussion again in Part B, we'll talk about three literal days and three literal nights, because I just introduced another timing issue by saying that Yeshua was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday. Most of you understand that that doesn't allow for three literal days and three literal nights, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, um, Ariel, why would you go with a Friday a crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection when that's clearly a Catholic view and it clearly doesn't allow for three literal days and three literal nights. And I'm of the impression that many Messianics as well as, as, well as um, many Christians uh, opt for... Well, actually, I, I believe that many Christians simply agree with the Catholic position of <clears throat> of three literal days and or, uh, three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday. But um, there's a man, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, who talks about the three, three literal days and three literal nights um, and it's a very popular position. And I'm going to challenge that in my next part of my commentary. Okay, so stay with me. Stay tuned for part B of my commentary to Omer Reshit, the first sheaf. <laughs> 